This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was young. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 145 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Quick shout out of gratitude, as always, at the top of the hour here to my corporate sponsors, which are inclusive of Halt and Honda, AHA That and Forever. As well, just to remind people following the live show, you can eventually also find the podcast link of my interview of each guest of each week on my host page, also living fearlessly with Lisa McDonald over on the C-Suite Radio Network. So who is my yummy guest of today? Well, my guest is a brilliant man by the name of Stephen Shapiro. Stephen Shapiro helps organizations drive tenfold improvements on their innovation ROI over traditional methods. He does this by enabling all employees to focus on the most critical opportunities for avoiding disruption and staying relevant. Stephen is a business author, consultant, and speaker on the topics of innovation and collaboration. He started his innovation work over 20 years ago while founding and leading a 20,000-person innovation practice at the consulting firm Accenture. Since then, he has written five books, including Best Practices Are Stupid, which was named the best innovation and creativity book of the year by 800 CEO Reed and is an international number one business bestseller. His personality poker card game has been used in 25 countries around the world to create high-performing innovation teams. Stephen has presented his provocative and practical strategies to audiences in over 50 countries. In 2015, he was inducted into the Speaker Hall of Fame. In 2017, he was a regular judge and mentor on the TLC innovation reality television show, Girl Starter. Welcome to the program, Stephen. How are you, my friend? I'm doing fantastic, Lisa. I'm looking forward to this. Well, this is awesome. We were just saying before we went pre-live, it was months ago that we initiated contact and we got this on the calendar for today. And I'm so excited that we get to showcase you and all your yumminess today with the loyal listeners and the podcast subscribers. So thank you for the gift of your time. I know how off the hook busy you are. Oh, to me, this is my pleasure. I love doing this. This is fantastic. So there's a couple of things. Everybody who follows me, which I'm very grateful for, knows that my style and approach to my weekly interviews is uh, unscripted. I believe it makes for a much more organic and authentic conversation. But the one thing I do typically start off with as a general question is what was the inception of your journey in terms of what people would now glean from your success and your accolades today, knowing that everybody has a backstory and not everything is a bullseye, a win-win. There's usually a lot of strife, a lot of struggle, a lot of adversity that one has to overcome in which to reach the level in which you have. So can we talk a little bit about that, Stephen? Sure. I think the big question is, uh, which one? Uh, <laughs> there, there are certainly, as, as with anybody who's been doing this as long as I have, we've had a number of hiccups, roadblocks, speed bumps, whatever you want to call them. I think the, the first one I'd probably the one that's most memorable to me because it was a major shift 
uh, in terms of the content that I focused on is in the early 90s, I was uh, one of the leaders of Accenture's business process reengineering practice. And basically what that meant is we made companies more efficient. We would optimize companies. And in the process of optimizing them, uh, people would lose their jobs. There was downsizing taking place. And look, I knew people were losing jobs. I mean, one of the companies I went to, 10,000 people were losing their jobs because of the work that we were doing. Uh, but it was one day when I actually started to see, I was watching a TV show about three people who lost their jobs and the impact it had on their life that I said, I can't do this anymore. So I took a leave of absence and reinvented myself over 20 years ago as an innovation person. Instead of helping companies shrink, I help companies grow. And that's been a commitment that I've had to myself since that time. Beautiful. Love that. And so one thing that I read in the bio here that really captures my interest, and I haven't had a chance at this point to unfortunately read it, but the title of your book, Best Practices Are Stupid, can you extrapolate upon that, elaborate a little bit upon that? Because that's a very unique title. Well, you know, it's interesting. Titles you choose uh, for the selling of the book. I mean, that's, yes. like, that's something a little provocative. And look, are best practices, best practices stupid? Quite often they are, not 100%, not 100% of the time, but sometimes, you know, most of the time they are. And there's really, there's three reasons. One reason is uh, if you are replicating what somebody else is doing, you're playing a game of catch up. So by yes. the time you implement their best practice, they're on to the next practice. Mm -hmm. And so you can't differentiate when you replicate. And so the key here is let's just make sure that we're best practices can be useful for things which are just sort of table stakes. Like we have to be efficient at this and we need to be good at it, but it's not why people do business with us. Uh, mm -hmm. But we also have to be careful even then because uh, what works for one company doesn't necessarily work for another company, culture, industry. There's so many different things which drive the effectiveness of a best practice. And then the last thing is that something called the undersampling of failure. And basically what this means is we tend to study successes. Mm. We don't tend to study failures. And so uh, what ends up happening is for every time somebody talks about a best practice that they implemented and people latch onto and say, look at how great this is. It worked for them. They don't see the thousand other companies that tried the same exact practice and they failed at it. So it's that undersampling of failure, which to me is the, the most nefarious of all. Well, I appreciate that you said that, and I think that's a key point that's worth dissecting because I think that that plays into all segments and aspects of life, which is why I think it's really important for people who I'm showcasing because my priority is always with the loyal listeners who have very graciously put me on the map for where I am today. And as much as they're very inspired by the guests that I showcased and they're always looking for nuggets and uh, tools and, and gifts of wisdom in which to help propel them on the trajectory of embracing their greatness. Uh, and stepping up and stepping into it, um, they can't, unfortunately, in many cases, resonate with the success stories, all the international best-selling books and the people who are in the Hall of Fame, which is why I always like to digress a little bit uh, and more so focus on, you know, what is the humanized story behind Once Upon a Time before people would know who you are on the stage as a recognizable name or as an influencer or as a thought leader? Because what you've incorporated into your mindset, to your DNA, your daily regimen, your practices and principles are the things in which can serve other people and going forward. Um, so in terms of the trajectory of your journey, Stephen, what are some of the outside of the bumps 
<clears throat> pardon me, and roadblocks within the business aspect of things. But as a human being, honing yourself as a, a human being who's very crystal clear on what your purpose is, being mindful of things such as legacy, you know, what have you had to get exceptionally clear of? What have you had to eradicate in your life to be on the straight and narrow in honoring your journey, your spirit, and the trajectory of your own success? Well, I think one of the things which I didn't realize early on, so when I was at Accenture, I was doing a lot of speaking. I would speak to audiences of thousands, 10,000 people at a time, uh, and I really enjoyed that. And I thought, this is great. I love the stage. I want to become a professional speaker. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't realize is when I launched my business is that being a great speaker is only a small part of the speaking profession. We are actually marketers who happen to speak about mm -hmm. a particular topic. And so I really had to learn the, you know, all different marketing techniques that I didn't know. And that was a challenge for me. And even sales, I'm not a person who's, I'm an introvert. So selling is not a natural act for me. <laughs> and so trying to get good at that actually took a bit of work. Mm -hmm. Well, so what you're basically referring to there as cliche of, a, of an adage as it is, but it's getting comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's truly where the growth and the evolution of self is birthed, correct? Absolutely. And and we also have to be comfortable with the fact that what worked for us yesterday doesn't work for us tomorrow. Uh, and I think that's ever I mean, even more true today. I and mean, that's, you know, when I think about everything through the lens of innovation, which is my area of expertise, uh, all the techniques that we used, you know, just a matter of years ago, all the technologies that we would leverage are irrelevant. And so at the end of the day, it's really about relevance. It's like, mm -hmm. how do we not do what we love? How do we not do what we are good at? But how do we do things that create value for others in a way that they're willing to pay for it? Absolutely. And so let me ask you this, Stephen, you know, you wear a lot of different hats, you're very diversified in terms of your skill set. But when we focus on the arena of what you excel at, in terms of collaboration and innovation, if we, if we hone in on innovation specifically, you know, whether you're innovating a book, whether you're innovating a keynote, whether you're innovating a product, a service, uh, whether it be virtual technology, whatever the case may be, or your branding, what is your favorite aspect of all of those moving parts that do need to, you know, blend well and merge well together that's your favorite part? Well, I'm not sure it's my favorite part, but I would certainly say it's maybe the most important part is uh, – making sure we're asking the right question because mm -hmm. you know, the reality is we're, we're, we're running around and we're getting ideas from lots of people. We're hearing things that are working for others. Uh, we have things that we think would be valuable, but are we doing it the right way? Like what's the real goal here? And mm -hmm. so we're so focused on ideas and solutions. We tend not to step back and ask, what is the problem I'm really solving here? What's mm -hmm. the problem I'm solving for myself? And what's the problem I'm solving for the world and my clients? And that to me is, I mean, it, it's just, that's the most basic and fundamental uh, skill that we all need to become better at. And I think when I go into work with my clients, it's the one they struggle with the most because it's not a natural act. Very true. Absolutely. I want to say how much I, I did upload it to my social media. I was, you know, obviously researching you a little bit prior to this moment. And uh, I love the Vimeo video. And what you just said is a good segue. And this is what just tweaked for me. Uh, when you talked about 
the baggage and the, the problem versus the solution. So can you extrapolate a little bit on that so that the, the listening audience knows what it is I'm making reference to? Because I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I, I, look, I love the story because it's fun, but there's also so much to do with it. So yes. the very, very short version of the story is an airport had people complaining it took too long for the bags to arrive. So they did some analysis and found that it took about 15 to 20 minutes. And they spent a ton of money on faster conveyor belts, more baggage handlers, new technology, and they got it down to eight to 10 minutes. So they were focused on the problem is how do we speed up the bags? And mm -hmm. they figured we went from 15 to 20 minutes down to eight to 10 minutes. That's pretty good, right? They asked <laughs> the passengers what the biggest complaint is. They were still complaining about the baggage claim process. It took too long. So they knew there was a point of diminishing returns. They could not if it took them that much money to get it to eight minutes, to get it to seven, six, or five was going to be prohibitively expensive. Mm -hmm. And then they had an epiphany. They realized that it took the bags eight to 10 minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel, but it only took the passengers one to three minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. So instead of speeding up the bags, they slowed down the passengers. They literally <laughs> reconfigured the airport so it would take on average eight to 10 minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. People were happy. Airports selling more because people are walking past shops and restaurants. And the point is, we tend to spend our life focused on a particular problem. Like, how do I speed up bags? But right. the reality is, this was they were trying to ask the question, how do we reduce wait time? And wait time and the speed of the bags sound the same, but they're not. Mm -hmm. And so these questions are so important, but you could change it. So you could go from how do we speed up the bags to how do we slow down the passengers to uh, how do we you know, reduce the wait time to how do we make the wait time a different type of experience? So I live in Orlando, Florida, where people pay $100 a day to stand in line and wait. You, know, you go to one of, the, one of the theme parks here. But the, the amazing thing is you don't feel like you're waiting because the experience of the wait is so wonderful. Airports are about the most boring wait experience. So what if we change the wait experience? And so there's so many different ways, anything you're working on, there are dozens and dozens of different ways you can slice and dice it to come up with a different range of possible solutions. Absolutely. Absolutely love that. And so was it based on your own personal experience of being one of those um, you know, passengers who was in that particular situation where you could quickly identify like what is going on here or was this in fact something that was passed down to you or just in your general research? Because I, I thought that was fascinating. I'm sure there's a, a plethora, a million other examples that fit that exact criteria to illustrate the problem and the solution. Yeah, mo most of the stories are from my personal experience. This one happens to be one which was handed down to me. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, there's so that's the wonderful thing about innovation or any topic is there are so many wonderful, powerful stories out there uh, where we can learn fundamental principles about business, success, life, innovation, call it whatever you want. Absolutely. And so when we talk about lens of objectivity, so clearly for what you do and the, the amount of people that you continuously uh, interface with, whether they're hiring you, whether it's something that you're speaking specifically about or what's in, involved in your books, you know, to what degree, because we're always better at looking at things on the periphery of somebody else's problems or somebody else's circumstances. And it's very quick thinking on our part to go, you know what, if you just tweak this or if you just did that, you would have a totally different outcome. It becomes a little bit more difficult in terms of objectivity 
to turn that lens back on ourselves. So, so for somebody who specializes in this, and this being your niche market, um, what in terms of lens of objectivity, what are the questions, the key questions you ask yourself with respect to your perceivable problems? The, the main things that I try to focus on uh, is, is really who questions. So it's not even so much why questions or what questions or how questions or who questions. Uh, so who else has solved a similar problem, uh, mm-hmm. which is a, to me a fast way of finding solutions outside of my area of expertise. I'm interested in who has this problem because mm-hmm. in order for me to even create something of value, I have to design from the outside in and look at what the needs are. But I also look at who else could do this better than I could do it Uh, because my goal is to only focus my work on the areas which I'm best at which create the greatest amount of value and I try to partners partner with others for everything else and so I'm always looking externally to see who should I partner with and how do I construct a partnership where we have the a win-win relationship a real partnership relationship rather than just a a vendor customer relationship Beautiful. Love it. And so when we look at, because it's splashed all over, whether we're talking about the current culture of leadership or politics or humanity or or, uh, climate change, et cetera, et cetera. When you look at things from a broader perspective, and it's not necessarily a one-on-one thing that you need to solve or problem solve with somebody, you know, what do you, what's your views, what are your perspectives when you see the ills of the world or the things that are unnecessarily impeding the quality of humanity or the world or making things a little bit more smoother or being in the flow and being more solution-focused as opposed to problem-saturated? When you look at things such as that, Stephen, what, what conjures up for you? Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, we, we've always had this expression, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. Mm-hmm. But in fact, I want bigger, better, more important problems. And I think the issue is we get – we drown in a sea of irrelevant problems. We drown in a sea of noise. We drown in a sea of ideas, and we're not really focused on what really truly matters. And so that is to me where I try to get – individuals and organizations and teams is to really step back and just say, what matters most? Mm-hmm. How do we innovate where we differentiate? How do we focus on the areas that are going to have the greatest impact and try to eliminate the noise? I always say asking for ideas is a bad idea. Everybody <laughs> has an opinion, suggestion, or idea. Well, seriously, you go on to Facebook, you go on to social media, you go on to Twitter, you go anywhere. Everybody's got opinions. Most of them aren't particularly good. And so they're not very useful. And so what we need to do is really, instead of focusing on the opinion, suggestions, and ideas, actually focus on those questions, those opportunities, and then say, how do we solve this problem that we know is an important problem? And if you frame the question the right way, you will eliminate the noise and you'll get much higher quality solutions much more quickly. Love it. Well, I have to say, Stephen, you have a very unique way of thinking I, I you know the, the attractor factor for me oftentimes it's not just about you know synergistic synergistic co-creative partnerships but I'm really attracted to people's intelligence I'm really attracted to the way people dissect things or they look upon things and especially when it kind of stands apart from you know what would be considered uh, generic or stereotypical uh, you have a really unique way of looking at the world and you know so you know, challenge me on this because 
I want to further understand this a little bit better. You know, I often talk about with guests on radio, what you put your attention on grows stronger. And so we know that that can work for the negative as well as conversely for the positive. So sometimes because people don't have your way of looking at things from a strategic brilliant standpoint, people get mired in the problem aspect. It's like if we focus on the problem, that that tends to invite the mindset of more additional problems. Conversely, if we focus on the positive or being optimistic or being solution focused, that brings about the air of energy and synergy that we want to co-create uh, and have existent in our lives. So because you have a very unique way of looking at things and you have you really do have a brilliant mind can you kind of take what i say what i think and it's not original to me of course it's not an original thought um but in terms of what you put your attention on grows stronger how does what's the application of that what's the end result if, if you're focusing on problems but you're doing it in a way that you're discerning it not getting convoluted and inviting more problems yeah so you know that there's a lot of science behind what you're talking about. And part of it is because we need to focus. If we didn't focus on something, we our heads would explode due to all the stimulus around us. And so mm -hmm. uh, there, there's a number of different factors that are going on here. But the one which I find most interesting uh, as it relates to what you're talking about is uh, confirmation bias. And confirmation bias basically means uh, whenever we have a strongly held belief about something, no matter mm -hmm. what information we are given, even if it is contrary to our belief, we will only see the evidence that supports our belief. True. And so that, you know, we, we always joke in the world of innovation that, yeah, but is the enemy of innovation. <laughs> but the reality is we need to get better at not doing things. There's so much work going on inside of organizations. We need to get better at knowing what to kill. Because mm -hmm. that will free up time to actually work on what matters most. It's that prioritization. And so the bigger enemy of innovation from my perspective is the, wow, this is a great idea. It's exactly what you're talking about. Because when I think something is a great idea, a couple of things will happen. The mm -hmm. first thing is something called positive test strategy, which basically means if I think I've got a great idea, I'm going to run tests designed to prove that my idea is a good one. But I'm not going to run tests that are specifically designed to show that my ideas are terrible. And that's one of the things we need to do is we need to become better at having that because what we focus on expands, we need to increase our peripheral vision by having people who are the naysayers. We need to surround ourselves with people who are going to challenge us. We need to have that devil's advocate, that yes. person who's going to look at the other side of things. Because otherwise, we're just breathing our own oxygen, and Absolutely. that's where we get into trouble. So do you, so just to clarify, because I want to make sure, you, I'm trying to keep up with you here. Uh, you're very you're, you're different paced guests than in many cases what I'm accustomed to in terms of we're thinking differently, but I, I, I concur with you on a lot of what you're saying, but this is a different way of thinking for me. So I'm trying to learn here as well. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen. Are you saying that the greatest ideas or and or solutions are birthed out of problems as opposed to solutions? Well, they're they're birthed out of a need. I mean, I've always said that maybe necessity is the uh, mother of invention, but I think that laziness is actually the father of innovation. 
because what happens is we're always trying to find a better, faster, simpler way of doing something. And I think that you know, if we, we understand that people will do more to solve a pain than they will to get a gain. You know, so if you cut your finger, there is an urgency to figure out how do I stop the bleeding? How do I deal True. with it? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, if, if the, the whole goal is to have, you know, better skin or not, you know, not have it, ha- you know, avoid the, the risk of getting cuts, people don't think about that. So we're always in the mode of, I've got a pain, I want to solve the pain. And that is our natural inclination. If you look at almost every infomercial, it's so interesting to watch the infomercials. They're almost always <laughs> constructed the same way. The first part of the infomercial is in black and white. It's like, are mm. you tired of trying to drive and drink your coffee and read your text messages and talk to your friends at the same time? <laughs> and it's in black, and you're spilling your coffee, you're crashing your car while introducing, and then they whatever. So that, that's GPS. <laughs> yeah, so we do know that that is how people typically make decisions. But look, there, there's so many new uh, innovations that come out that people didn't know that they wanted that become very powerful. I mean, whether it's the iPhone or Amazon Prime, these weren't things people were asking for. So it is both. But you have mm-hmm. to recognize that it's easier to sell somebody something that they know that they need than it is sometimes than it is to give them something that they don't know they need because then you have to create that need. Very true. So do you believe, based on everything that you've said and everything that you embody and what you stand for, do you believe that the pendulum of the collective consciousness of how people are inclined to act, think, or behave is more conducive to being reactionary versus being proactive? I think today, I mean, look, reactive and proactive, they're, they're, they're tough words at times only because a reaction can drive proactivity. Uh, so I don't know whether it's an either or. I don't think it's binary as we tend to think about it. Uh, but I do think we tend to be very, uh, you know, emotional. So if you think about when you go to review sites, a lot of times it's that the people who are most inspired to give a review are either the one stars or the five stars because the one stars are just pissed off and they just want to vent and <laughs> get heard. And if the five stars feel like it changed their life, well, they're going to want to be share that with the world also. Uh, so we, we do have both of that. Uh, but I don't, I, so, so people want to, to share and, and unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it with social media now on uh, the democratization of content, anybody and everybody has a voice the problem then is to be heard in that entire environment. And so what happens is you create noise, you create conversation, you create stimulus, which is a, uh, I don't know whether it's proactive or reactive, which will trigger people to want to take particular actions. And, you know, we see that in all areas of life. Okay. Well, I asked that particular question because going back to the example that you cited about, you know, somebody cuts their finger versus what will somebody do to better maintain their skin so it doesn't become, I don't know, more raw or more susceptible to being injured. So, you know, so for for one person to operate in the sphere of wanting to prevent, that comes from proactiveness. From somebody who is in a situation either because of things that they could have Uh, prevented or chose not to uh, get on top of, then they're reacting. Um, And of course, as you cited, 
with infomercials, they they do that all the time. I mean, this is great strategic marketing, and this is again, it fuels the consumption, the greed, the fear, and this is what keeps people buying, 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 buying. Do you? I mean, from a marketing standpoint, that's brilliant. Uh, but do you think that's counterintuitive if we're trying to evolve ourselves as human beings to be a little bit more smarter than that? Man, I, I don't know if we're evolving or not. I mean, that that to me is a, a tougher tougher conversation to have. I think that, you know, in some respects, uh, technology has allowed us to evolve, but in some respects, technology has allowed us to devolve because there's certain things now that technology does better than we do. And therefore we don't have to evolve in those ways. And I, I mean, the simplest example I always think of is, uh, you know, glasses like back, you know, before eyeglasses were invented, if you had bad eyesight, you would probably get you know, run over by a water buffalo or whatever there was back then. <laughs> uh, and, and now that we have glasses, you live and you live to perpetuate the genes. And so as technology evolves and we become safer and as we can use technology to uh, prevent, you know, prevent, you know, increase our level of survival, well, then are we evolving or devolving? I, you know, I, it, to me, that's a, a tough uh, a tough conversation to really answer, and I'm sure there's a lot of smarter people out there who have better perspectives on it than I do. Uh, I guess when the way I look at it is, and again, I look at everything through the lens of innovation and, and what helps mm-hmm. companies grow is expertise is the enemy of innovation. Uh, and so what ends up happening is our past experience cloud our decisions in the future because we believe what worked in the past is going to help us work in the future. But you saw that Sears just announced that they're uh, filing for yeah. bankruptcy. Uh, you've got, you know, the uh, Sports Authority, Toys R Us. I mean, and, but it's not limited to those industries. You've got Pan Am, you've got Kodak, you've got all these companies that were once great and now they're not so great. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with these blind spots, these mental models that we have. And so we need to be able to, and it comes back to what we talked about earlier, we need to expand our peripheral vision because Mm -hmm. if we use the path that we've been on in the past and just incrementally improve, we're going to be out of business. Absolutely. Bingo. So if we look at, rather than me posing the question from a macro perspective, perspective in terms of whether uh, you know we are evolving or not and we take it down to the micro level where you just speak specifically for yourself uh, Stephen in what ways are you evolved when you look back from past to present uh, to where you foresee yourself going in the future as somebody who is a, a you know a diehard innovator to the ways that to the degree that you can be objective with yourself that you feel maybe you have uh, devolved or you still have yet to up your own game to get to a point of evolving. Yeah. It, it, and it's something I ask myself all the time. I mean, I right? do worry about disruption. I do worry about relevance. I mean, relevance to me is the name of the game mm-hmm. and relevance just means providing enough value to others in a way that people are going to want to do business with you. And so I was fortunate enough to well over 20 years ago, get involved in the world of innovation when innovation really just meant developing new products. Now innovation is products, processes, services, business models, disruption. I mean, it's it's expanded, but it's still all innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do worry that because I was successful at innovation and I have a successful business around innovation, is there a point where innovation is going to be just another buzzword that fades into the background? Will there be other people with new perspectives on innovation where um, I'm not keeping up with the times? So mm-hmm. 
you know, I, I do worry about those things. And I do worry about even, look, we, we all have changes in our life that drive mm-hmm. some decisions. As an entrepreneur of a small business, you know, I used to love to travel, but I moved to Orlando, Florida, which I love. I got married. Traveling to me is not as appealing. So I have to then all of a sudden shift my business model. If I don't want to be on the road 100% of the time, I need to now think about a new business model, innovate my business model in a way that continues to serve my clients, yet at the same time serves me and the wants and needs that I have. Brilliant. Brilliant. And so for somebody who's always committed to perpetual growth and evolution of self, um, you know, what are some of the things outside of what you've already been very successful at having achieved to the point where you've been inducted into the Speaker Hall of Fame? You know, you appeared on TLC Innovation Reality Show. You've written books. Uh, you've got, a you know, a generous roster of clients. What, you know, do you get to a point where you think, how do I keep up with myself? Never mind keep up with the trends, the patterns or whatever's going out there in terms of background noise, as you uh, cited before a couple times throughout the course of the interview. But in terms of keeping up with yourself, do you have enough in the tank where you can go, okay, yeah, there's still this to birth. There's still this to, you know, extract extrapolate upon there's still this to hone on there's still this to turn on its head and see where that might go i mean what is the future for steven shapiro yeah and that's that's a really good question and i do uh think about that uh a lot because you know i i need to be evolving myself and innovating my content uh and innovating my business model and and all of those types of things and i do worry at times uh, will I run out of material? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and in some cases, what I've, what I've discovered is it's not so much about increasing, you know, coming up with like a lot, some authors will have books that are, each of them are completely different on completely different topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I'm finding is each of my books maybe go deeper and deeper and deeper into a specific aspect. Mm-hmm. So if, if you look at best practices are stupid, that's sort of the breadth of my innovation content. Personality Poker, which is a book which comes with a deck of cards, that's the depth on one very specific out of the 40 concepts and best practices are stupid. That's one book that digs deep into just one of those 40 topics. Uh, my next book is going to dig deep into just about three of those topics and go super duper deep. And it's not just a book, but it's going to have video and tools and other types of things to support it. So – it's not always being novelty isn't the goal. Mm-hmm. It, it's really about relevancy and it's about creating something of value. And that's, you know, what I'm, but it's, it's tough. And I, I think, I think almost every person who is in a similar position to I am, we, at some level, we feel like, uh, I mean, there's a term called the imposter syndrome. Yes. We talked about that quite a bit on this show. Yeah. And, and I figured because that's, you know, what, I, what I've discovered, I mean, I've, I've studied the imposter syndrome for like 20 years now because I find it fascinating how the more successful we become and the greater the accolades become and the 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 more we feel like a fraud mm-hmm. uh, and it's you know just sort of an interesting phenomenon and I always have to keep that in check and you know focus on you know what I am doing rather than what I'm not doing focus on the successes and not just the failures Okay. Well, and what just came to mind as you were saying that, Stephen, that was very well put, very succinct. uh, And I I got a visual, I get a visual when people talk. Um, You know, when we think of imposter syndrome, 
you know, I'm just wondering if there's some way of equating that or it's a different extrapolated version on the same spectrum of umbrella as, uh, you know, burnout. Like, how do I keep up with my own stamina? Because as entrepreneurs, we're creative spirits, we're visionaries. Um, you know, we, we can't think fast enough, uh, you know, in terms of what goes on within inside our own DNA, in terms of the execution for what's going on inside of ourselves keeping up with real time, it's really hard to take all the ideas that we have and we have simultaneous ideas and we have simultaneous products and services. It's really hard to keep up with the real time execution of that, even though we feel equally jazzed by all those components of what it is uh, that we feel compelled to do. So the visual that came to mind is I think of the chefs, you know, and the stars. And if they don't, if they don't compete, uh, if they don't consistently get the same star ratings, you know, how much of what, propels these people perhaps to suicide uh, is based upon, uh, oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm shrinking in the ranks. Uh, you know, I've somehow dropped my, the ball on this. I've lost my edge. I've, you know, I've, I've done something wrong. People are better than me versus people just can't keep up with themselves because when we talk about innovation, when we talk about trying to always remain committed to being the best, most improved version of ourselves and necessarily only being in competition with ourselves as opposed to thinking we're in competition with everyone else in the space, you know, to what degree ratio-wise does sometimes people imploding who are just brilliant, genius, creative spirits, uh, it's related to so-called imposter syndrome or just burnout. Yeah, I, I think they're all related to some degree. Uh, for me, burnout comes when there's lack of clarity or too much work. When, when I have clarity, then it doesn't seem that difficult. I mean, there's much less burnout because I know what I need to do. So I think in a lot of cases, uh, you know, what you're describing isn't as much the imposter syndrome as it is uh, people trying to focus on too many things at once. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe they are doing that because the imposter syndrome is driving them to do that because they feel if they don't, uh, then the world will know that they're a fraud. Uh, but I, I think sometimes that, that clarity really helps. Like if I say, you know what, this is the one product I'm going to focus on right now. This is the one where I'm going to try to get as much traction as I possibly can. Uh, or these are the partnerships I'm going to create. Cause again, to me, my key to burnout is to recognize I'm going to do a small percentage of the work necessary to be successful mm -hmm. and I'm going to work with others. So if somebody gave me this expression many years ago that I live by, uh, he said, before you can multiply, you must first learn to divide. Mm. And I find that to be very profound. Before you can multiply, which means to grow your business, you need to divide, which means you need to share your business. And so that's been my strategy is I have a lot of partnerships where we all benefit from the success. And that to me is the best types of relationships. That helps me avoid burnout because I have a lot of people on my team that I'm not even necessarily paying. They take a percentage of our wins and our successes. Mm -hmm. uh, Whereas the imposter to me is the gap between the external world's view of me and my internal view of myself. Yes, and thank you for saying that because that's what—that's exactly the point that I was going to come back to, but you just said it before I had a chance to. Um, because, yes, imposter syndrome, I think, is more a self-imposed belief than it is something that is um, you know, bestowed upon a person based on their peers or colleagues or critics or fans or followers or whatever. Because really... You know, if you're good with yourself, if you're very clear on what your vision is, what your purpose is, what your passions is, what your end goal, your objective, your strategies, et cetera, 
you're too consumed with fulfilling that and and being in harmony to execute all of that then you are being aware of what's going on outside of you you know i think that when people become unhinged within themselves to the point where they spend more time and attention focused on how am I being perceived? Uh, you know, why do people perhaps not like me? Why have I fallen in the rankings on Amazon or whatever the case may be? When that becomes your point of focus, as opposed to you just being in the flow of doing what you absolutely feel compelled and jazzed to do, um, I, I, I think the imposter syndrome then just becomes, it, it really is more of a self imposed contrived perception of self as opposed to the reality of what's going on outside of you that's my personal belief oh yeah i i, I totally agree i don't think the the imposter syndrome is a reality i think it's uh it, it's really just a matter of when a business grows faster than we grow as individuals yeah that's there's sort of this gap and if you can imagine like a graph where our individual perception of ourself grows at a five percent annual rate yet our business is growing at a 30 percent annual rate at some point you get a huge difference between those two lines and i think that's really what happens and and this is i mean i've talked with some people who are some of the most famous famous thought leaders in the world and they have this uh, so it's not, you know, it, it's not uh, unique to a certain group of people. It seems like it's a, a pretty universal concept. And uh, I talked with somebody once who was an expert on it, and she said that it tends to be linked to, uh, you know, more uh, emotional intelligence. So the people who are more concerned about themselves than they are about the world. So the, the example that she used, which I think is so brilliant, is she said some people. Uh, when they put on their put on their jeans, they will think, and they're a little snug. They're like, "Oh, I put on some weight." Other people will be like, "Oh, my jeans shrunk in the dryer," and that's the difference of thinking: is am, am I taking responsibility or am I blaming somebody else? Love the that. The imposter syndrome are going to think, "Okay, well, what can I do about it? What did I do wrong? How can I fit into the jeans rather than blaming the dryer for it?" Love that. Yeah, that hits that home pretty pretty. Pretty bingo, pretty bullseye. So let's just do a contrast here. I want to ask you, Stephen, have you ever in a certain juncture, uh, part of your career, where everything is so aligned? You know, you couldn't be, you know, in terms of the the uh, results, the percentages, what's in the bank account, uh, you know, the recommendations, the reviews on your books, everything have on the on the outside, everything looks like it's going stellar in your world. But for whatever reason, you inside, you know, you're just not in congruency with your out, outward success. And contrasting that with at a time where things seem more difficult, it was hard to get things aligned, it was hard to get everything, all the working pieces moving. But for whatever reason, you felt like you were more in your element. You know, can you contrast two different circumstances in your life to support one where it would perceivably look like everything is on the up and up for you, but you didn't feel it within yourself? as compared to a time in your life where things were just more harder to get working and getting off the ground and going vertical, uh, but you, for whatever reason, felt like you were operating at your highest vibrational level. Yeah, I, I think I would go back to the time that where we started, which was uh, in the mid-90s. Uh, I was working on helping companies become more efficient, and I just woke up one day and said, this is not me. This is not the life I want to have. This is not the contribution I want to make to the world. Uh, so 
I took a leave of absence and I started to really, I mean, I spent a lot of time just thinking and journaling and trying to figure out what do I want to do. And in the end, it was, it was similar types of things that I was doing, but it was helping companies grow, it was to focus on innovation. Uh, and so, but that was a challenging time. Emotionally, I was like, I had no idea where I was going with my life. I had mm -hmm. no idea what I was going to do. I'm not working. Uh, and I'm sort of evaluating where I want to go, but I started to get that clarity. And as I got that clarity, I got a determination. And I tried to sell this concept internally to Accenture quite a few times and got shot down, got shot down, got shot down. But I was I was determined that I'm either going to make it work there or I'll make it work somewhere else. I'm not I'm not giving up on this vision. Mm. And fortunately, through a series of conversations, I ended up meeting uh, somebody who connected me with someone else who happened to be. Uh, putting it in charge of a global group, brought me on to lead, you know, the group and uh, things went beautifully from there. And I really felt like I was in the flow at that point. I mean, it just felt like that period of desperation to clarity, to execution was really, really powerful. But then as things went further along, then you end up where all the things we've been talking about. So that was a really beautiful time. Mm -hmm. Love it. Okay. And so in terms of Anything that you would wish to cite uh, or impart message-wise, wisdom-wise, based on experience uh, that you think might be most impactful and of value uh, and really a an aha moment or a catalyst for the loyal listeners or the podcast subscribers who will eventually be listening to this uh, in terms of your own experiences, knowing that you know life is hard. Things don't happen instantaneously. And sometimes you have to make three or four refined attempts before it gets off the ground. Uh, whether it's somebody wanting to birth a book, whether it's somebody who wants to make a completely different lifestyle change, whatever the case may be, what would you wish to impart to the listening audience, Stephen, that embodies the spirit of living fearlessly? Well, I, I think that determination, that clarity becomes really important because if you have that clarity – and, and, and I, to me, it really comes down to what I call the passion, skills, value equation. So you have to love what you're doing. Otherwise, at some point, you're going to burn out. You yeah. have to be good at it or at least be able to get the skills to be good at it. But the value part of the equation is creating value for others mm. in the belief that if I create value for others, it will create value for myself. And that's sort of the model I've always used as much as I can because it gives me the most clarity. And there's other aspects to the model, but those are the three core core principles of it. And I find that that, uh, you know, just just thinking that way has helped me a lot in terms of determining, you know, when I'm going to continue to fight for something that I believe in. But I also coming back to what I talked about earlier is if some if I'm hitting a roadblock, mm -hmm. there's there's two things which I have to say to myself, or at least I have to ask myself is one is, am I solving the right problem? So maybe I have a solution that's solving the wrong problem, or maybe I have a solution that's solving the right problem, but there's a better solution that would be more elegant. So that's the first thing. And the other thing is, you know, are, am I making certain assumptions? Like, what are my assumptions that I am making? And I need to challenge and surface those assumptions to be able to make sure that uh, I am moving in the right direction because I think some determination on its own is not enough because mm -hmm. if I'm determined to do something that doesn't create value that people don't want and that it's going to be difficult to implement, there's no point to it. So Beautiful. I, I actually view it, you know, I, I always say meander with purpose. 
So it's not a straight line, but what we do is we, we have to have a sense of direction, but then we have to sort of like a river, the river doesn't go, you know, through the rocks, it goes around the rocks. And so Mm. we need to be malleable and, you know, sort of have that flow mindset so that I can go with what comes my way and see something better around the corner rather than trying to say, okay, well, this is where I'm going to be in five years, hell or high water, and I'm going to do anything and everything I can, and I'm going to bulldoze. Meanwhile, that vision of where you want to be in five years probably is going to change as you go along. And as you get new information, you'll have better concepts as to how to get there. And maybe it's probably a different destination. Love it. Well, just being cognizant of time, but I, I do want to get this question here in here that just came to mind. So, you know, would your ideology, would your philosophy still stand on its own, regardless if you're whether you're talking about simultaneous existing or pre-existing problems all working at once versus one isolated problem? Yes. I mean, it, it, then you have to worry about looking at it from a systems perspective. So if you have one isolated problem, that's a lot simpler because we can uh, find ways of reframing and solving those problems. When there are much larger problems or a quantity of problems, we need to see how they're interconnected. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting, the World Economic Forum does these studies to see you know, what do they project are gonna be the most important skills uh, for individuals and companies to have. And in 2015, they said that the number one most important skill was complex problem solving. And their prediction for 2020 is the number one most important skill is complex problem solving. And I would argue it's complex problem formulation and complex problem solving. And so that to me is, and the World Economic Forum agrees, it's the most important skill for us to have. And so if I have lots of problems, I need to pull them together into one macro problem that I can then deconstruct into smaller solvable problems. And do you see somebody being a problem, like an effective problem solver? Do you see that uh, equating or being synonymous uh, to somebody who is? Um, I just lost my thought there. Sorry, Stephen. <laughs> I was I was trying to correlate two different ways. Oh, so critical thinkers. So do you, do, if if somebody is an effective problem solver, do, does that instantaneously then suggest that they're also very effective critical thinker? It certainly helps. It definitely helps because, again, it's, it's, if you come back to the complex problem formulation aspect, the asking the question, well, we need data. Mm-hmm. Now, data doesn't necessarily mean big data analytics and statistics, but we need at least some kind of psychographic or ethnographic type of study where we are observing people. We, we make hypotheses as to what people need, but we need data. The, the problems we're solving and the opportunities that we're going to go after – can't just be this feels good it has to be based in some form of reality and so being good at critical thinking being skeptical i think are actually great traits for people who are problem solvers because they're going to make sure we're really working on a problem that matters rather than just chasing bright shiny objects like a lot of people do right well and i also i also put that in the same category as somebody who is able to be discerning Right. You don't just jump on board with every single thing that sounds good or trendy or cliche or the buzzword of the time. You've got to really be discerning, because if you do get seen as that person who's always saying yes to everything that seems like it's the flavor of the month, then to me, there's no critical thinking going on. There's no deducing of common sense necessarily or practices or principles or procedures. Um, You're just going along with the sheep. 
Well, exactly. And to me, that's the difference between creativity and innovation. Creativity is sort of a spark. It's an idea. It's a thought. Innovation is an end-to-end process that starts with the issue, problem, challenge, or opportunity and ends with the creation of value. And it requires people of different personalities, different styles, different thought processes, uh, and we need to pull them together in the right way. That's I developed personality poker specifically for that because it helps people understand where am I going to be most effective in the innovation process and where am I not going to be as useful. So if I'm not discerning, I might not be as good at the problem formulation aspect, but I might be very good at the problem solving aspect. Beautiful. And so again, being cognizant of time, Stephen, I want to give you an opportunity to plug yourself in terms of where you can be found, where your books can be purchased and anything that's upcoming on the calendar that people might perk up and go, okay, well, I want to go where that guy's going, or I want to partake in that webinar or that speaking engagement, whatever the case may be, where can people reach out to you? So the easiest place is just to go to my website, which is steveshapiro.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the easiest place to find me. If you're interested in personality poker specifically, you could go to personalitypoker.com. Uh, and the third place, which I've not shared this publicly, so this will be the first place I'm sharing Woo-hoo, it publicly, thank you. <laughs> uh, is uh, a new program I've just launched. We put a our first company through it and proved it was unbelievable. Uh, and so I'm now looking for others who are interested. It's called Innovation Intervention. So if you go to innovationintervention.com, it's not on my website. It's only on innovationintervention.com. And it's a eight-week deep dive into uh, innovation where people get content and get to get hands-on support. Beautiful. So going back to the product line that you've developed in terms of uh, personality poker, what about innovating that to incorporate personality strip poker? What, what, do, you think, what do you think about that, Stephen? <laughs> well, that's an interesting idea. Probably not going to be great for my corporate audience. <laughs> well, you can always look at that from an abstract per- perspective, you know, strip down all the veneer of how you come oh, across. Man. You know, I mean, you could play with that. See, I like that thinking. That's really good. I'd have to get past some of the sensors and everything else, but the concept, and that really, it's beautiful what you just said, because that's really is the whole point of personality poker is to, you know, really get clarity about who you are, strip away the mask of yes. who you think you are. Because the great thing with personality poker is uh, basically it's poker cards with words that descri- describe behavioral attributes like creative, analytical, empathetic, uh, organized. And we select cards that describe who we are. We select cards that describe who we are not. But we also give other people cards that describe how we see them and we stimulate conversations. And in the conversation, those masks get stripped. We get to get those connections, those deeper connections that we don't normally have. Well, I think I just gave you something there. I think I just implanted a seed. And if you take off with that, I want a little bit of a royalty on that one, okay? There you go, for sure. (laughs) Well, Stephen, I just want to say it's been such an honor. It's been such a pleasure uh, and a privilege to showcase you. I've completely enjoyed this conversation. Um, It really got me thinking. I take notes. uh, And then, of course, when I play back the podcast, I pick up on nuances and other ways of looking at things that I I wasn't able to glean being on as the interviewer. So I just want to say I got a lot out of this. Um, You're a very articulate speaker. I love how your brain works. uh, And you're always willing. You know, you always have a standing open-ended invitation to come back on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald, particularly, and I would ask if you venture to create a second version or edition of your personality poker and it becomes strip poker, 
you're coming back on regardless, okay? <laughs> well, it sounds great. And, and look, I, I had a really great time because I, I love when these are unscripted. I had no idea where the conversation was going to go. For me, this is wonderful because we talked about topics I'd never in a million years expected to talk about. Well, thank you for the feedback. And 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 that's, again, why I much more appreciate uh, and implement that particular approach, because you never know what path you're going down in these conversations or what it then segues into uh, that wouldn't be part of a necessarily standard scripted Q&A. So thank you for being raw. Thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for your metaphors and your analogies, which really depicted and hit home uh, your points, which really made things a lot more clear, not just for myself, but I'm sure I speak for the listening audience as well. And to the listening audience, I want to thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule for once again joining myself and my guest of today, Stephen Shapiro on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Want to remind you once again, once the podcast link has been issued and released after calibration, you can find it over on my host page, also Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald on the C-Suite Radio Network. I want to once again thank my corporate sponsors, which are inclusive of Forever, AHA That, and Halt and Honda. And I want to thank I Heart Radio, Spotify, Apple, iTunes, all the platforms. Please feel free to provide a review, uh, subscribe, click, upload, share, whatever the case may be. Can't do all this in a vacuum. So for those of you who have continued to support me and help me amass along with in conjunction with my guest of each week, the listeners and all the numbers, I just want to say thank you so very much. I appreciate you. I'm very clear on my purpose. My purpose here is to uplift you to fear less and to live more. And I look forward to being back with you again next Friday. You've been listening to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.